Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Greg Lemkow, the CEO of MSD Partners, the investment firm with roots as Michael Dell's family office. MSD was formed in 1998 to manage $400 million of Michael's capital. In the ensuing 25 years, that initial $400 million has grown to north of $20 billion. Greg joined MSD two years ago after a 28-year career at Goldman Sachs, where he rose to co-head of investment banking, served on the firm's management committee, and was widely considered one of a few candidates to succeed David Solomon as Goldman's CEO. Our conversation covers Greg's career path at Goldman and lessons learned, including entertaining stories about his work with such fascinating entrepreneurs as Elon Musk and Travis Kalanick. We discuss his decision to join MSD, the firm's history, objectives, competitive advantages, and investment capabilities. We then turn to MSD's recently announced merger with BDT partners, including the rationale, process, and integration of the businesses. We close with a look into the future of the transformed organization. Before we get going, the new year is a wonderful time to reflect on the past and plan for the future. There's almost a universal constant in our industry of the desire to work hard and get better. Some of that comes from internal drive, and some requires the support and experience of others. On the latter, we're here to help. We're hosting our third cohort of Capital Allocators University in New York City on March 9th. 
will teach important frameworks for senior professionals to reach the next stage of their careers. The one-day seminar offers a rare opportunity for allocators only to connect and learn from subject matter experts and each other. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is an explicit sales promotion. It's not something I do every day, but Hank told me we should plug the course to spread the word. So check out the university tab on the website and join us on March 9th in New York City. Thanks so much for spreading the word about Capital Allocators University. Please enjoy my conversation with Greg Lemkow. Greg, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Ted. Thanks for being here. I think we should start with your first career before coming to MSD. Why don't you just take me on your path at Goldman? So I started at Goldman in 1992. Actually, maybe even I'll back up as to how I got there. It was not the traditional apply to the analyst program when you're a sophomore in college and then start that path, which everyone seems to be on. I went to Dartmouth College. I played soccer at Dartmouth. And up until my senior year at Dartmouth, my plan was to play professional soccer. And that would lead you to think I was really good at soccer. It actually was more about me wanting to defer adulthood and go mess around for a while. So I, but I had a plan to go play pro soccer in Zimbabwe. A friend of mine, a couple of years ahead of me, had gone and done that. He'd blazed the path. And up until about my senior spring, that was my plan. And my senior spring, I remember sitting outside my fraternity, getting some sun and hanging out. And someone came out and said, your parents are on the phone. And I said, my mom or my dad? They said, no, your parents are on the payphone inside. So I walked in and both my parents were on the payphone and they very gently said, Greg, it's been great watching you play soccer your whole life. It's been really fun supporting you for four years at Dartmouth, but basically we just paid for an Ivy League education. You should probably go get a job. It was like really (laughs) gentle and nice, but they were so right. It kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, okay, I should probably go get a job, but it's now senior spring and I did not have a job. So I decided, I think on the spot, I was going to be a lawyer, but I hadn't taken the LSAT. So I scrambled around and I got a job as a paralegal at Skadden Arps great big law firm. My plan was go there for a year, take the LSAT, go to law school. And then I got inside of Skadden Arps, and this is now way back in 1991. Big law firm. It became very clear that the learning curve of a paralegal flattened out quickly. I mean, this was back in the days of photocopying, of redlining, not with a computer program, with actually a red marker and a ruler. And it was interesting because it exposed me to the deal world. And what Joe Flom was doing at the top of Skadden Arps looked amazing. CEOs were going in and out of his office, and it looked kind of fun. He, at the time, was probably in his 60s. He looked like he was 100 to me. And there was <laughs> paralegal, three years of law school, and then 100 years to do the cool job. And I said, forget it. I'm out. I had a couple of friends that were doing banking. That seemed a little bit more interesting. And randomly went all around and interviewed a bunch of places and was fortunate enough to get a job at Goldman Sachs. And so that was my circuitous path to Goldman Sachs, where I started in 1992. And what was your path within Goldman? So I started as an analyst in the M&A department. There's probably 100 people doing M&A deals at Goldman in 92. Started in New York and was just doing deals. Was doing that for, gosh, about nine months, 10 months. And someone came into my office and said, uh, hey, saw on your resume, you'd spend some time in California. Would you think about going to the LA office? And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm with all my friends in New York. Life's great. And then the next day, somebody came by my office and said, hey, we really need an analyst to go out to LA. What do you think about going to our LA office? And I said, God, these Goldman Sachs people don't know what they're talking about. I already said no to that guy. Thought a little strange. I remember the next day someone said, Hey, Gene Sykes, who's the partner in the LA office, is going to be in New York tomorrow and he wants to meet with you about going to the LA office. And I was like, <laughs> I'm thinking they're no longer asking. There was no more inflection at the end of the question. And kind of on a whim, I said, Sure. It was unbelievably fortuitous because I got to know this guy, Gene Sykes, who was a partner at the firm in 1992, is still there. I think is probably the best MA banker of multiple generations and ended up being a mentor of mine. 
So that was just a great opportunity to work directly with someone who became a big influence on my career. I did that for a while. I came back to New York, still doing M&A deals for a number of years and started to do technology deals. And so this was before everything was set up in industry groups the way it is today, but you did one or two tech deals and all of a sudden you were a tech expert. And I spent a bunch of time going out to the West Coast. This is now mid to late 90s. The tech market started to pick up. We had a team out in the West Coast taking these companies public. And then you needed to figure out what do you do with the proceeds or as the stock valuations kept going up and they were doing stock for stock pooling of interest transactions, how do you think about deploying those and doing M&A? So I'd fly out there and advise these companies on M&A and eventually it, it was a big enough opportunity that a few of us ended up moving out there to start up the tech M&A business. And it's fascinating. It was a guy named Mark McMorris who went on to go work at General Atlantic for a long time. And then Robert Smith, who eventually went on to go found Vista Equity and me, the three of us went out there, all the same associate class like Three Musketeers, started up that business. And it was great. And it was booming for a while, late 90s, early 2000s, transactions happening left and right, meeting interesting, cool entrepreneurs. And then that came crashing down. When the tech bubble came crashing down, I came back to New York and then moved from our technology business to our healthcare business. And at the time, I don't think I knew anything about healthcare other than I think I'd been to the hospital when I was born and maybe when my first kid was born. That was about it. But there was a lot more happening in healthcare than there was in tech. And it was a big opportunity to kind of lead a business I did that for a number of years until, gosh, about 2007, when David Solomon actually had just been named head of investment banking at Goldman, came by my office and he said, hey, we don't really know each other that well. He'd been in a different part of the business. He was still relatively new to Goldman. And he said, I'd like to come talk to you. So I went to his office and he said, "Uh, I've just taken over investment banking. What I really need is a COO to help me run the division. And I think you're the right guy to do it. And I looked at him and I said, that sounds horrible. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is an amazing opportunity. We'll work hand in hand. I said, all I like to do is do deals. All I want to do is be with my clients. I don't want to spend any time internally. It sounds honestly like a dreadful thing to do. And he kind of looked flummoxed and said, well, I kind of need you to do it. And why don't you just work with me during the day on strategy stuff and helping to run the business? And then at night, you can do all your client stuff all you wanted on the weekends. Stupid me. I said, okay, that's fine. So I basically did two jobs for a full year. But I'd say that was another key inflection point because what David really taught me is how to be a manager. I mean, he was a really good runner of businesses and it was a skill I didn't really have. I was so focused on my client time and I really got a great opportunity to spend time with David helping to run the division. Did that for a year. And one of the key things we were trying to implement at the time was driving the business more globally, really trying to build out our businesses. And so at the end of a year of doing that, he said, if we really want to live by this global strategy, why don't you move to London and help run our tech media telecom group out of London? So I went to London. I started commuting in maybe the beginning of 2008. I moved over there in the middle of 2008. My family moved over the fall of 2008, and then the world stopped. It was a harrowing time to be in London as an American investment banker as the financial crisis was hitting, probably even more acutely so being a Goldman Sachs investment banker. It was wild. Those early days of the financial crisis were scary. But it also ended up being incredibly character building because you go out there while you're probably the pariah to society and you go and build relationships with clients who are predisposed to not want to like you and probably blame you for the world collapsing. But you keep investing and you spend time and you bring good ideas and really build close relationships. So I ended up being over in London for five years. I did three years as tech media telecom. I then did two years running global M&A. At the end of five years, it was really a moment of, do you stay there forever? Because my kids were of the age about to go into high school and I was going to have a kid in high school for what seemed like forever as I've got four children. So we took the opportunity to come back, came back to New York, was running M&A for a couple more years, then took the role of running 
global investment banking. And that was what I did my last handful of years before I left Goldman. When you look at that period of time of the financial crisis, what's your favorite story or example that embodies this concept of, boy, this is tough, Goldman investment banker in London, but you got to keep going? There are a few moments. I'd say every Sunday night before I'd go to bed, just given the time difference, I'd call back to my friend, Stephen Schur, who was a partner and was in New York at the time and really close to the action. There's a couple Sunday nights in a row we were like, I don't know what's going to happen when you wake up tomorrow. It was reasonably scary. There was a moment I remember sitting with my wife right around Thanksgiving at our dining room table and just kind of looking at each other. I'm like, I think Lehman had gone under at the time. And it's like, we could just be totally wiped out, but got four great kids and we got you and me. It's going to be okay. And you realize it is going to be okay. And then on the client side, people would joke around in New York about, yeah, you go to cocktail parties and you don't tell anybody what you do anymore. You try going through border control. You go through customs and you're the investment banker with the American passport. You would get grilled. You sort of say, I'm in finance and they kind of ask and then finally get down to the fact you were a Goldman Sachs investment banker. And they basically looked at you if, if it wasn't you that caused the financial crisis personally, you definitely knew the guy that did. But there was one great moment I was in France and I'd taken French all the way through high school and in college. I could understand it. I probably couldn't speak it that well. But the French love to speak French in meetings when they think there are people who don't understand French in the meetings. And so they would be talking openly about me, everyone in the room, not thinking, and you kind of have to sit there impassively and not react, but hearing everything they're saying, which is always entertaining. And then you leave the room and you tell your colleagues what they're saying about you. And you realize they probably don't like you that much. So in your time in banking, I know there are a lot of stories of things that you were really in the middle of with now very well-known entrepreneurs, particularly in the tech space. There's probably no one more in the press today than Elon Musk. I'd love to hear about your relationship and maybe a story or two working with Elon. I'd say one of the great benefits, especially in the last handful of years, and having spent a career of 28 years around the technology industry as it really evolved, I just had the privilege of working with Michael Dell, for example, Mark Benioff, Daniel Ek, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, Travis Kalanick. And so it's sort of just fascinating personalities building really world-changing companies in a lot of ways. So Interestingly, Elon wasn't a close client of mine, but I got called into a situation when he was attempting to take Tesla private. This is back in 2018. And I remember it vividly because I was moving my daughter into college. She was a freshman at USC. It was freshman fall weekend, and Elon put out his infamous tweet around 420 funding secured. Then he called the bankers, which was slightly out of order. So we went up. We had a meeting at his house at 10 o'clock. A handful of us went there to go figure out right, what's going on. How can we help? I remember the first logical question I asked this. First of all, why do you want to go private? And Elon looks right back at me and he says, well, do you believe that humans deserve to live continuously? And I kind of pause because it's a little bit of a pet peeve when people answer a question with a question, but I was like, okay, I'll, I'll bite. Yes, I do. And he said, well, these short sellers that are taking away all of my time and focus, I've got to try to run Tesla and I've got to try to run SpaceX. And if I look at what's going on in SpaceX, I have a whole bunch of shareholders like Fidelity and T. Rowe, and no one really bothers me. I get to run my company privately. I'm doing great things. We're launching rockets. The government loves us. Everybody loves us. Over here, I've got shareholders like Fidelity and T. Rowe and others in Tesla, but I also have all these short sellers and they're out to get me and they're posting false information and it's a massive constraint of my time and it's taking away from either my ability to build these cars that are going to save the world or if the cars can't save the world, my ability to launch these rockets to Mars because if we're going to ruin this planet, we need to go colonize Mars. So I kind of listen, which all makes logical sense. I kind of chuckle a little bit. He says, do you not believe me? I was like, no, I fully believe you. And he says, let me go show you something. We walk into the next room and he's got this massive map on the wall. And he's like, here's Mars and here's how I'm going to colonize it. Never seen Mars before. It looked like it was Mars. It could have been Ventura County or something like that. But, <laughs> but it, you know, he had an actual plan on how to colonize Mars. And it made you think this guy thinks bigger than anybody else. And he is not messing around when he puts his mind to something. He's really going to try to go do it. We then plotted for 
hours into the early morning, how we could actually think about raising the capital to go take Tesla private, which was a pretty hard task at the time. So we said, all right, give us a week. We're going to kind of go run around. We ran around the world. And by hook or by crook, we basically came back to Elon and said, there's a path to do it. It is not easy, but there's a path. And you're going to have to do a bunch of things that are going to be challenging in some way. And you're going to have to get some of your public shareholders to roll. You may have to do deals with sovereign wealth funds. And that may mean you need to go do a deal with China, or you need to go build a gigafactory in Jeddah, or you have to have private equity people on the board. But there's a bunch of other constraints you're going to have to have. And I wouldn't say we were trying to talk them out of it, but we were trying to let them know that maybe the short sellers aren't that bad of a thing. And we went through the long thing and he said, oh, I kind of like it the way it is now. Let's just kill the whole thing. And so that was it. It was like a week of, <laughs> of craziness. And then he went back to running Tesla, but it was a wild time. I think he left that meeting at two in the morning and went back to the factory. And he was really redesigning the assembly line at the time. And you forget Tesla's now taken off in such an incredible way, but you forget there were moments there when it was really his genius and fortitude that kept that company alive and let it go on and thrive. So another one in the public eye this year with Super Pumped was Uber and Travis. What was your role in working through that whole situation? I mean, you think about all these founders, I'd say Elon is just next level genius, like sheer genius, I think generational, if not multi-generational genius. Travis, I'd say is just the most impressive executor I'd ever seen. I mean, anyone who builds a business model who at its core is taking on the taxi and limousine commissions in every single city and winning, the guy's got to be able to execute and be relentless. My role was actually at that point, it was advising the board. It was when the board and Travis were having a fight. And Benchmark and Travis in particular were having a fight. And at the same time, we were trying to take capital in from SoftBank. And so it was negotiating a deal with SoftBank, who in classic SoftBank fashion was saying, either you take all of our money or we're going to go invest it in Lyft and kill you. It wasn't you know, like a one friendly negotiation. So you're trying to hold all of this stuff together while effectively negotiating Travis's exit in a way that made everything work. And it was as complicated a thing, I think, as I've done, partly because you had two people who'd been so successful or the two groups, the Benchmark group. And then Travis, who'd made each other a lot of money, but they were, I've never quite seen anybody at odds. And so he'd work out all the details. He'd finally get to a transaction that worked. And invariably, he'd go to one side, you'd go to Benchmark and say, all right, we got a deal. And they said, has Travis agreed? I said, yeah. They're like, well, then we don't agree. Because if Travis agrees to this, there's something we're missing that's bad for us. And you kind of go back to the drawing board. You'd renegotiate the deal again. You'd go to Travis and say, hey, we're done. We're all signed up here. And he'd say, well, does Benchmark agree? And we're like, yeah. And he's like, well, God, then it can't be a good deal for me. And like for months, <laughs> that would go on. It was borderline crazy. We finally got it where we were able to land the plane and get the whole thing done. But it was impressive, like Sun Tzu style art of war. But we finally did get a deal done. And at the end of the deal, I had a text from Travis and he said, hey, I'd like to meet you for a drink. And, you know, we'd been at war for a while. It was dicey. So part of me was thinking he was going to put a hit out on me or something. And so I ventured up and go have a drink with him in classic Travis fashion. He goes, hey, like for an investment banker, you're okay. You probably even earned your fee here. That was about as high praise as you could get from anybody. <laughs> and initially, it actually began a relationship where after he and I, for months, had been at odds, have become friends. And the subsequent world as I've gone on to MSD, actually become an investor behind him in his next venture, because I do think he's a really impressive entrepreneur. But it was an auspicious beginning to a relationship. With that long of a career that you had at Goldman, there's always what seems from the outside, either navigating politics or getting yourself in the right place. What did you learn about working with an organization like that? It's interesting from the perspective of from the outside versus the inside. I truly think it's a special firm. I think the people are unbelievably talented. And I think the culture is special. It really is a culture of teamwork. And the whole place is driven by the better we do together as a firm, the better we'll all do individually. That was an environment, being an athlete my whole life. I loved competing in a teamwork-oriented environment where we had a whole bunch of people kind of all going in the same direction. 
people always say, gosh, how'd you get to where you got to? I don't know is half of the answer. There's a little bit of luck versus skill and almost sliding doors. Had I not gone to LA, would I have met Gene Sykes? Would I have developed the same way I did had I not taken this job? And so you never quite know. And if you think about the path I took in my career and you look back, you say, man, you were really calculated. You made all these moves along the way. None of them were calculated. It was all a random walk as to how I ended up in each space. But I'd say the one lesson through all of it looking back was embracing change, was actually showing that you've got the ability to be successful and impactful in multiple different places. And once you did that once or twice, then actually the world opened up because anytime there was an interesting opportunity where they thought they needed somebody to go build something, I would usually get the first call to go do that. So I think that was helpful. And then the other piece, it's you hear about the hours of investment bankers. It's you work a lot, but ultimately anything you're going to spend that much time doing, you better like. And that's what I always tell anyone who wants to start an investment banking or think about doing it. You got to like what you do, whether you like the ultimate job or client service or giving advice or the ultimate industry. But if you don't like what you do, you can't be good at it. And just for whatever reason, I liked it. I love doing transactions. I love being trusted advisor to clients and trying to solve problems for them, whether it was two years into it or 28 years into it. It was always interesting enough and energizing to me to keep me going. You mentioned that David Solomon was gifted at managing people. What did you learn from him that you hadn't been exposed to before? Blunt talk, like giving real direct feedback. It's an amazing skill and a liberating skill, and not many people do it. I think it's actually one of the biggest things holding back people from becoming effective managers. I'd say, you know, if a place like Goldman Sachs, I'd say if you asked anybody there, everyone there would tell you their top quartile, which is mathematically impossible. But it's probably because they've all been told their top quartile. And David would not do that. David would give you direct feedback on what you did well, on what you did poorly, what you could do better. I saw him do it with me. I saw him do it with other people. It was, in the first instance, it's jarring, and then it's liberating to actually hear it. And I remember the person who ended up taking the job after me, that COO job, it was sort of a rotational job. She asked me for advice. She said, well, do you think about it? I said, listen, it's an amazing experience. You're going to learn a ton. If you're the kind of person who needs positive reinforcement, hire someone to do that for you. Like when you get home from work, just hire someone at the door who's going to say, you did a great job today because you're probably not going to get that from David. But if you actually want to get much better at what you do, he will be incredible in terms of giving you direct feedback and then teaching you how to do that. As I've gone on in my career and managed people, people would much rather know where they stand, what they're good at, what they're not good at, as opposed to kind of get smoke blown at them. And so I'd say above everything, it was that ability to talk straight and give real feedback that was quite helpful. After three decades at Goldman, why leave? Opportunity more than anything else. So I wasn't looking to leave. I truly loved what I was doing. My last role there probably was, I don't know, I keep debating what the best job at Goldman Sachs is. It's either running investment banking or running M&A. It might have been running M&A because that was super fun. It was really about being with clients more so than managing people. And I was running it with a guy named Dan Dees, who's still there today. And he and I had started as analysts together in 1992, had gone through these crazy paths and were running the business together. And we were really close friends. So it was fun. I wasn't looking to leave. In May of 2020, I got a call from Michael Dell. And Michael had gotten to know and respect as a client. We spent a bunch of time together when he took the company private. He then did the EMC deal. He then he did VMware, squeezed out, went back public. We had a battle with Carl Icahn. We spent lots of time together. And then I also happened to have a, a home near his home in Hawaii. And so we'd spend some personal time together. So I'd gotten to at least know him and his family a little bit, all of which is helpful if you're thinking about aligning with an individual as opposed to a purely institution. Anyway, he calls me out of the blue. We weren't in the middle of a deal, so it caught me by surprise. And he said he had this business MSD, which I knew about. You know, it's gone from a family office to this institution. He thought it could be a lot more, and he wanted to get new leadership in to take it to what it could be. And he'd spent a bunch of time thinking about it and talking to different people, and it kept coming back to me, and he thought I was the right guy to run it. And I very politely said, that's really flattering. Thanks, but no thanks. I've got a job. I love what I'm doing. I'm okay. And in classic Michael Dell fashion, he's not afraid of an awkward silence. He paused for a while, 
And then he said, I don't think you're actually listening to what I'm telling you. So I'm going to go through it again. I'm going to tell you why it's a good opportunity. And I want you to listen to it and go away and think about it. So he went through it again. And I listened more, but my head was still saying, I'm going to be polite because he's a client. And so I listened. And then I was about to hang up the phone. And he said, wait, wait, I've actually got a top 10 list as to the 10 reasons you should join. And I kind of laughed. He's like, no, I really do. And it was 14 reasons. I, I just got to go find it somewhere. But it was great. So he texted it to me, clearly put a lot of thought into it. So I said, right, I'll take it seriously. And I went away. And I still wasn't initially inclined to do it. And then as I stepped back and thought about, all right, I was at Goldman for 28 years. I'm not going to be there another 28 years. At the time, I was about to be 51. And of all the different things that had come across my desk, this was an opportunity to take an investment platform at scale with a great reputation and great people, be the CEO day one, not be the CEO in waiting or the co-head with someone whose name was on the door, but be the CEO of a business and have a growth mandate because Michael wanted to really build this. Not just have the mandate, but have the capital that the Dell family was going to put behind the growth strategy. And then I'd say most importantly, have this great business builder in Michael Dell as a partner and a thought partner. And that combination, I just couldn't imagine being replicated anywhere else. So I took the leap. I said, gosh, this is so interesting. I have the chance to go build a business with a guy like Michael, with a great team, become an investor, which seems like a relevant life skill, especially at the age of 50 and go have a 15 plus year run doing something different, like a real full second act. So I jumped. What was on that top 10 list? Autonomy, authority. He said, listen, running a big business at Goldman Sachs is interesting, but really being the person who's got the authority and the accountability around decision-making, what's the right stage in life to be doing that. He had a comment about more control over your life, which I think is accurate, except as my own boss, I'm a bad boss because I, as my wife said to me, she said, God, I think you work harder now than you did at Goldman. And you worked really hard at Goldman. Are you just not good at your new job? And I said, I, thanks, honey. By the way, possibly. That's one of the options. I'm hoping the option is no, I'm just <laughs> pouring myself into the new job. He had a whole bunch of things, including around thinking about becoming an investor, building wealth, building a business, all those kind of things. And so it was pretty compelling. What was the history of MSD before you got here? So MSD started in 1998 as pure family office. It was diversify Dell family wealth away from Dell at the time. And it was started by two folks named John Phelan and Glenn Furman, who for 20 plus years ran it together and did a phenomenal job building wealth for the Dell family, really diversifying away. There were multiple iterations of public strategies, private strategies. About 10 years in, they formed MSD Partners, which is a registered investment advisor, which allowed them to take outside capital. You had a whole bunch of friends of Michael along the way who were saying, hey, you've built this thing. Can we invest alongside you? As a family office, you couldn't. As an RIA, you could. So they really began to build up as an investment firm largely with Dell family capital, but other family capital. And then over time, as they built out different investing verticals, in particular in credit, institutional capital. So by the time I'd gotten here, it was a meaningful investment business with a really big credit business with a great credit team, a real estate business, a private capital business. And there were still a handful of public strategies, which had been a big part of the business, but was a dwindling part of the business by the time I got here. Was there an investment DNA? The core thing at MSD has always, in my mind, just been hardcore investors. Value-oriented, but doesn't have to be four times EBITDA. But the tagline, which I love, is long-term partners in a short-term world. And the world is, I'd say, in the 25 years of MSD, has gotten increasingly short-term. So one of the great advantages I think we've had has been duration of capital, really taking the advantage to see through quarters, see through cycles, but also not be forced to sell because you're looking for capital return, but being able to hold businesses for a much longer period of time. What was your mandate when you came in? So when I got here, what Michael and I talked about was 
continue the evolution of this family office to institutional firm. He said, just go build a world-class firm. He almost said, you know, I don't even know what that means you do, but make it something my family and I will be proud of. What I always said to myself, it was institutionalization without bureaucracy, trying to figure out how to get this thing in the right foundation so it can continue to grow without putting in all the bureaucracy you see at some of the bigger firms. So step one was build a great firm, which was kind of a fun, cool mandate. Step two was make sure you've got enough scale and capability that the Dell family can invest meaningfully more capital over the next 10, 20, 30 years as they diversify away from Dell and VMware and think about diversifying wealth and building capital to give to the foundation ultimately. And then step three was at the same time, diversify the investor base with other LPs that are like-minded, so who want the same kinds of investments that the Dell family and our existing investors want, which is risk-adjusted returns, downside-protected compound capital over time, but ultimately build an investor base where those LPs become bigger than the Dell family because at some point in his lifetime or shortly thereafter, his plan is to give all his money away and doesn't want that to cripple the firm. So you want to build an institution that is going to last and be durable. And so it was really those three elements strategically that I set out to try to think about for the next phase of MSD. What have you found that building a world-class investment organization means? Most importantly, I think the thing that MSD had, which I give credit to Michael and the founders, is this unbelievable sense of aligned investing. I mean, from day one, I think when Michael gave John and Glenn capital to invest, he said, here's the deal, go diversify my wealth, but anything you put me in or you invest me into, I want you guys in. You have to put your own money into. And I think they looked at Michael and said, well, we don't really have any money. And he said, I'll lend you money. So I'll give you leverage, but you got to put equity in. I'll allow you to get leverage from me. I don't know if it was luck or genius, but if you think about what Michael was trying to accomplish, which is compounding capital over time, staying rich, protecting the downside. If you've got investors with leverage, they're focused on not losing money, number one. The leverage works both ways. And they're focused on really compounding wealth over the long term, which is exactly what he was focused on doing. So mission one for me in world-class investment firm was keeping that hardcore investing DNA and keeping that sense of aligned investing. And then the second piece was making sure incentives were aligned in a way to really build a firm and to build businesses that were going to be successful across platforms. And so making sure people weren't just focused on the actual investment they were making, but their business and not just their vertical, but the firm. And just trying to reorient a sense of ownership at the firm around trying to build something together. How do economics, compensation, alignment work in an organization? A lot of times in family offices, people don't think about the competitive wage if there was an independent private equity firm hedge fund. Again, another thing that MSD got right from the get-go is paying real fees and carry. And it's amazing. Now that I've been in this family office world for a couple of years, you see all sorts of models and people either thinking, well, they didn't raise the money and I'm giving them the money so we don't have to pay them as much. By the way, the thing that's most amazing is I'd say the number of people who made their money as investors with a two and 20 model who then start their own family office business and decide not to pay two and 20 is sort of insane to me. You see all sorts of things, but Michael was always prepared to pay fees and carry to the team in a competitive way and then created this opportunity for people to borrow money against their equity to invest. And so everyone was really heavily invested. And I think one of the things that was critical to our business is outside of the Dell family, if you look at the partners and employees of the firm, we are the biggest investor across all our funds. And so it's very different than the world where I think alternatives and private equity has gone, which is a little bit of the other people's money and you're paid to deploy capital as opposed to paid to invest capital. The mindset here has always been investing capital because you've got more of your skin in the game than any of our investors do from a personal wealth standpoint. So you're really focused on making great investments. As you start thinking about this as a business, in addition to the investment side, where do you think your competitive advantage lies? 
the thing I said really from the time I got here is there's a lot of capital out there and there's a lot of really smart people. So we've got to figure out what our edge is and we should only be investing where we've got what I like to say to the team, we have a right to win. And so there's a handful of places I think we do have a right to win. We talked about duration, but duration of capital makes a real difference and being able to hold something for 10 years, not five years or forever, not for 10 years is it makes a meaningful difference. And I think the world has gotten more and more short term in particular in the alts world of trying to get capital returned to shareholders quickly. And so going to a family business owner or to a founder of a company and say, listen, we can hold you for 10 years or we can hold you forever. makes a meaningful difference. Duration is an advantage. I would say our credit business, just our credit team is actually our edge. You know, they've been together for 17 plus years, all six of them together, sourcing deals, investing deals, underwriting, and with that same risk-adjusted mindset where they're just not losing money. And so Michael calls our credit business his stay-rich business. So that team, I think we've got a real advantage and we should be continuing to deploy capital across that business effectively. In real estate, I'd say we have two advantages. One is duration. We bought an asset last year. It's called Sierra Square. It is a building in downtown Philadelphia. It used to be the post office, I believe. It's the current headquarters for the IRS. It's right by where Drexel and Penn and the Children's Hospital all converge. And everybody who looked at this business said, man, it's a perfect place for a life sciences lab. It's got big ceilings and biotech is going crazy. Then the one issue is the IRS had seven or eight years left on their lease. So anybody with a 10-year fund couldn't invest in it. By the way, anyone who just wanted to take a coupon, it was too short-term. And our view was, we have forever capital, so why not buy it? We'll collect coupons from the IRS for seven or eight years. I'm pretty sure they're going to have the money, so there'll be money good on their rent. And then in seven or eight years, we've got the flexibility to then go develop it as a life sciences lab. Or by the way, if that doesn't make sense in seven or eight years, we can develop it how we want to. And so that's a place, like, I don't want to go compete against Blackstone and Brookfield in real estate on price. We're going to lose all day long. But if we can compete on duration, we'll do that. Same thing we've done on the hospitality side. We've got a bunch of great high-end hotels that we know how to run that we always call our hold forever assets. And we've now structured them in a vehicle that we can hold them forever. And then just the affiliation with the Dell family, which really resonates with founders and with family-owned businesses, partly because of the duration, but partly because you see this iconic founder who's been now at the head of Dell for 38 years running a business. And people want his capital and they want access to him and exposure to him. So we've really tried to use that. And then the last piece is just trying to use Michael. I think for a long time, Michael was pretty busy running Dell. I think he's still pretty busy running Dell. But back to my view of lots of capital in the world, lots of smart people in the world, one Michael Dell. So I've tried to slowly pull him into the business, recognizing he has a day job, but use him to get his insights on businesses he knows, to leverage his network of their places he can be helpful to us. He's unbelievably additive whenever we get him involved. And I just try to be somewhat disciplined around it because he's also running a pretty big company. So you mentioned... Credit business, real estate, you think of Michael Dell as a tech entrepreneur. How are you thinking about your background in the tech ecosystem and Michael in terms of investment strategy? So one of the first things I'd said to Michael was, hey, this is great. This whole thing's amazing you've built, but there's no growth equity. There's no real tech business here. And he's like, yeah, we were sort of focused on diversifying away from that. And I was like, okay, that was in 1998. That's a very different world. And you're kind of well diversified. And there's a whole lot more going on in growth equity than PCs and servers. And on top of that, you're Michael Dell. You're this iconic founder that all of these founders will want to have capital from exposure to. So we really built over the past couple of years, a really impressive growth equity business. And the focus had been on great founders, late stage businesses, proven business models, and the kinds of businesses you want to own for 10 plus years. Our first investment was in Stripe. We've invested in companies like Fanatics and Goodleap and Airtable and Service Titan. That's been incredible. And that's another place where we've leveraged Michael. We did a dinner down at Michael's house around the Formula One in Austin last year and invited 10 tech founders to come to his house for dinner. And I think we went 10 for 10, not surprisingly, 
But it was fascinating because you have all these founders who've done incredibly well in their lives, but they don't have someone like Michael to talk to. Even the VCs can't really do it. So we had a good little discussion on how'd you found your business and what's it all about. And then you get to dessert and someone said, well, what was your first hire from outside your founding group and did it work or not? And you kind of ended up going around the table and it was like, I don't know, 50-50. It worked and it didn't work. And then it was, how do you raise your kids with wealth? Do you let them fly private? Do you make them fly commercial? How do you deal with personal security? And all these founders were just pouring themselves out and all the questions they always wanted to ask, but you really couldn't. It was fascinating in really having that expertise of someone who's only 57 years old, but it's been at it for 38 years in the tech world as a mentor to these founders is amazingly powerful to us as an investor, but it's just powerful to us as a firm. How have you thought about public market investing? It's hard. If you look at the last 15 or 20 years, it's hard to beat the market. I think given the move around indexes and all the fund flows and electronic trading, I think it's been hard. And I'd say that if you look at the history of MSD, for a long time, it had been a value investor and a public market investor. Again, before my time, there'd been a bunch of work done that effectively said, does it really make sense to pay two and 20 or one and 15 or whatever it is to a bunch of really smart people who are going to consistently underperform the S&P? No, it doesn't. So we are no longer doing that. But from a public market standpoint, when I got here, we spun out our last public market strategy, really great investor, good business. We actually took a stake in his GP and gave him a bunch of capital, but it just, in the theme of where are we differentiated and where do we have an edge as MSD, it didn't make sense. We're doing the same thing with a little part of our credit business now. Great investors, great business. But if you think about the theme of what we're trying to build of places where we have an edge, that public market investing is really tough. And so we've backed away from it. There are others who can excel in it. But again, our view is if durations are advantage, it doesn't really play in public markets. When you think about Michael's balance sheet as a whole, how do you think about allocation across these different strategies? So he's got huge exposure to two big single stock positions. It was one with Dell. They then spun off VMware, which has announced it's merging with Broadcom, but really big public market exposure there. We still have kept some public market exposure more broadly in passives and S&P indices. Now we're trying to figure out risk-adjusted returns with the rest of the portfolio. And so that's why the big focus on credit, I mean, it is heavily structured, securitized, downside protected, compounding, low double digits. That's a great business for him. The same thing on the private equity side. Our private equity has been these founder-led businesses in things that have really been away from tech that have compounded over time. Our real estate assets, they've got some tax advantages. There's good cash flow and they're different asset class. And so these hospitality hotel businesses have been a great diversification away. And then growth is getting a little bit more upside in the portfolio. We've kind of gotten to the point you can have take a little bit more risk and get a little bit more upside. But if you looked at it, it's not your standard 60-40 asset allocation. I used to joke with the team, I think when I got here, asset allocation was more of an output than an input. I'm trying to make it be a little bit of an input and a little bit of an output, and you can massage the two of them. We're getting there. So you're now sitting on a bunch of capabilities. Michael's assets are being managed. And then there's an announcement that you're merging with BDT. Why don't you explain how that fits into the mandate and the vision that you have? Yeah. So BDT, it's a phenomenal firm and a phenomenal business built by a former partner of mine at Goldman Sachs named Byron Trott. And he left, I think, in about 2009 and with the original backing of Warren Buffett and then a number of family-owned businesses, he started up BDT as a merchant bank, really trying to serve closely held businesses, family-owned businesses or founder-led businesses, giving them advice. It advice broadly, not just the regular way investment banking of IPOs or sell side, but trust in the state or generational planning or thinking about philanthropy or all the issues that these family-held businesses have. And if you look at these family-owned businesses, they spend all their time on their family and their family-owned business and almost none of their time on their wealth. And Byron's background was a private wealth manager originally, and then an investment banker to these businesses. 
And what he realized is they want the same kind of things everyone else wants, which is risk-adjusted, downside-protected, compounding capital. And he created a model where they raised the fund and they were investing in other businesses like theirs. So they weren't going out and buying stuff in competitive auctions from other private equity firms. They're investing in other family-owned businesses. And to the business owner, they know they've got someone just like them who's driving a business and building a business and pouring their blood, sweat, and tears into it. And they'd much rather invest in that than go try to trade the public markets or go try to go to a regular way fund. So we sort of built a phenomenal network of families, which has now grown well into the triple digits of both investors, clients, and then portfolio companies. It's a fascinating business. And if you go back to what we talked about in terms of my objectives at MSD, evolve to be a world-class firm, get enough scale and capability to invest across asset classes, and then broaden the LP base, the magic of the combination with BDT was it really did all of those at once. We get a scale business with other world-class talent, and importantly, people I've known for 30 plus years. You get real scale in private equity. They're in the process of raising a significant fund, $10 billion plus fund that'll go alongside our similarly scaled credit and real estate businesses and our emerging growth business. So you've got now multi-asset classes that scale to deploy capital for the Dell family. And then you've got 150 to 200, I keep saying mini Michael Dells, but some of them aren't so mini, of other family-owning LP businesses who are looking to invest not just in the private equity business they invest into at BDT, but they like our credit business, they like our real estate platform and our growth platform. So really interesting synergy without overlap on that front. And I'd say the most important thing as we thought about putting these firms together was the culture of aligned investing. So I'd referenced earlier that outside of Michael Dell, the partners and employees of MSD are the biggest investors across our funds. And that real sense of alignment of we're investing our own money and investors are investing alongside us really drives a focus on returns. BDT has the same thing. Their balance sheet and their partners and employees of the firm are the biggest investor across their funds. So it's the same mindset of alignment. And I think that to me is critical in this world. As I look at our LPs, I've just seen an increasing trend in the alts world of chasing AUM and people feel like they're getting paid to raise money and deploy it as opposed to invest it. It's a distinction maybe not everyone appreciates, but I don't know, do I really care about getting a 20% return versus an 18% return if my goal is just to invest money? Not really. We care about the 20% return. Every extra basis point matters. So we're trying to be very careful not to go to be the biggest or try to chase AUM, but really try to be the best investors across asset class. I'd love to learn more about how you think about balancing this idea of kind of a business versus investing in that there's already a large amount of money with Michael's money. Now you're talking about many Michaels who aren't that many potentially investing. You're trying to build so you can support Michael's eventual withdrawal of that capital. How are you thinking about the business side of it? It is the ultimate tension. I think you highlight it well. So we're trying to build a business partly because I want everyone aligned around building franchise value. I'm thinking about what the combined BDT MSD can be and begin to distribute actual ownership of the firm in a way that hadn't been done before. So people feel that they're actual owners of the firm. So there's potential value creation in the equity we're building. So we do charge fees and carry. So there's, a, you know, there's value in economics. Now, the vast majority of my investing teams here of the potential wealth creation is around their economics in the carry and their co-invest. So that's what I still want. I still want them focused on that as opposed to focus on generating fees. But we try to still build a business that'll steadily grow. And my hope is we do grow it steadily based on really good returns and people keep investing their capital back into us as opposed to running around the world and chasing too much capital. But it's a tricky balance. How have you felt about coming here to have the authority and autonomy to run a business and in a relatively short period of time being co-CEO again? It wasn't something I was looking to do. But I found the person that was easy to do it with. And so Byron's amazing. You know, I've known him for 30 years. He's about 10 years older than I am. And so he was another mentor along my way at Goldman. 
we spent some time working together when we were there. We'd spend some time talking after I'd left. But understanding what he wants for his business, what we want, and how aligned the cultures were, it became very easy. And if you go back to my career at Goldman while I was the sole CEO here, I think almost every job I had at Goldman was co-headed. It's just so ingrained in the culture that even before Goldman had turned public, it was run by two people for a long time. So I think we both grew up in that culture and have the ability to figure out how we're going to divide and conquer. And it was fascinating as we were putting together the governance around the deal. Everyone said, well, what happens if you guys don't agree? We're like, we're going to agree. Well, what if you don't? We'll go in a room till we agree. Maybe we'll ask Michael his view or we'll poll the partners, but there's no you vote, you vote. There's a just figure it out. I feel like we're like-minded in the vision for the firm and doing the right things by our clients broadly and our investors that will sort through anything. You'd mentioned earlier that one of the great aspects of having the seat is having Michael as this great business builder. What did Michael say about that merger? So when I first raised the idea with him, he said, that sounds really interesting. How do you even merge a family office with a, like, how does it even work? I said, honestly, I don't really know. I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that one. But he was really intrigued by the potential and what it could do strategically as he thought about the goals we'd all laid out together. And then we spent time together. He's been through a lot of mergers in his career. So he was an incredible sounding board for both of us. How are you guys going to run it together? How are you going to think about it? Do BDT people think of themselves as merchant bankers and MSD as investors? How are you going to align those cultures, which actually ended up aligning relatively easily? And then he said, are there ways you can test it to make sure their investors will like it and make sure our assets appeal to them? Byron had polled his investors and they said they wanted more access to credit and real estate and growth. So we knew we had that basis, but we'd created this hospitality vehicle with all of our high-end hotels and stuck them in a permanent vehicle and then raised capital into it. And we actually used BDT to raise that capital from their LP base because we wanted to see that their investors like our stuff and did it work and it worked great. So we got a handful of their key investors aligned alongside Michael across that portfolio. And then we just spent time together. And the more we spent time together, the more it became clear we were aligned And Michael was just a great thought partner as we put these things together and really a great resource for Byron and me as we think about how do you want to actually go out and run this and build this company together. So now that you've spent a lot of time over the last year putting this together, you had a path at Goldman where you really wanted to spend as much time with clients through the entrepreneurs, the founders of businesses. How are you going to spend your time now? It's a great question. First and foremost, trying to get the firms integrated in as clean and crisp a way as we can. Now, the beauty of the combination is there's little points of actual integration. You know, we've got our growth equity, our credit, and our real estate business that are standalone, private equity. There's actual integration, and that team will have to figure out how to engage. And on the LP relations side, there's some actual integration, but there's not a ton of two-person, one-job things going on. So I think that part is helpful. But really spending time with the people and making them all feel like they're part of one firm. We said the sooner we get to no one saying, well, I'm a BDT person or I'm an MSD person, the better. And I think culturally, we're heading that direction. and then. I wanted to spend as much time as I can with the core clients. It's interesting being back in a client business. I used to call them investors, but these families are clients. We could be advising them on philanthropy, on investing. They could be investing in our funds. We could be advising them on M&A. And so thinking holistically about how we can help these families, BDT advised the Patagonia family on this recent thing they did, which is in the news. And so now that's a fascinating topic to any founder that's out there. And so it's really interesting to be able to go back and engage again with clients on issues that are important to them and finding out how we can solve them. And it's actually different than showing up and saying, hey, can I invest in your company? And they say no, and you have to leave. But it's like, what are your issues? How can I help solve your issues? And I think one of the potential opportunities for the combination is if you think about where BDT built their core LP base to begin with, it was really Midwest industrial consumer businesses. And it's obviously expanded across the country and industries into different geographies outside the US. But if we can take that model 
of really serving these family-owned businesses and broaden it to the technology world of serving these founder-backed businesses. I think there's a massive opportunity. I think these founders themselves have been underserved in terms of advice. Their companies have been well-served, but I think the founders themselves know how to think about wealth diversification and deployment of capital and philanthropy and all the issues that they face. And Michael's an amazing bridge, both generationally and geographically around those two worlds. As we're coming out of this COVID period with virtual work, and BDT's presence is in Chicago, yours has been in New York. What have you learned from that period of time that's either made it easier or harder to take these two businesses and effectively merge them together? I am a huge proponent of in-person. By the way, I live in Bedford, New York. My commute's a pain in the ass. There's nothing better than actually not commuting for a couple hours a day and working from home. But as our COO, Brendan Rogers says, the magic happens when you're together. And this is an apprenticeship business in every way. So the more we can be together, the better. And that's on a standalone basis, even more so on a combined basis. Now, the good news is BDT has a pretty big presence in New York. Chicago is still their biggest presence. The objective is really to get the two New York offices together as quickly as we can. And that will then become our biggest presence. So if we can get those teams together quickly and then begin to travel around and start to make it feel like one firm, that'll be the key. What I've tried to do, I've seen all of the fits and starts around work from home and return to office. And I don't think anyone has gotten it right. And I've seen it go wrong in a bunch of places. And what I've tried to tell the team is it's an apprenticeship business. We're better when we're together. Sometimes you're going to be traveling. If you have a doctor's appointment, you want to work from home one day, or you get your kid's school play, like I'm not going to take attendance. But if you're at home, you're not on the road for business, come to the office because we're better together. And yeah, it's a bit of a pain to go commute. But if you want to teach the next generation and collaborate and have meetings that aren't starting and ending every half an hour by Zoom, you'll do much better together. And I think that's what we've really tried to push here. And I'd say for almost every day but Friday, I think we got it. Michael's capital historically, you've had these internal teams. There's also been investing in other managers. And as you've seen that full spectrum, how do you think about those trade-offs and where you'd want to allocate to his capital in this case? So as part of the combination, we'll still peel out and have, I think, the old legacy MSD capital, which we're going to rename Dell Family Office to avoid any brand confusion. But there'll still be investments that don't make sense in the funds. There'll still be a big cash position. There'll still be exposure to passives. And we can get exposure to some earlier stage growth through third-party managers. We don't really have that much exposure to commodities. We can do that through third-party managers. So there's still great use and value in third-party managers. My aspiration is that the combined BDT MSD will be the alts platform of choice for Dell Family Office because we think we've got great investment opportunities that align with what he likes after knowing it for 25 years, but we won't be able to provide everything. And then I'd say my view, and everyone has a different view, is focus on net return. Find the best investors and focus on the best net return. So you got to be cognizant of fees, but I think so many people are so focused on how do I get a discounted fee or how do I get fee free or how can I get free co-invest to weigh down my fees? I think they're missing the bigger picture. Like, Focus on the guy who's going to get you three or four X your money for whatever the fee is, as opposed to the guy who's going to get you two X for a discounted fee. And I think there's a lot of that, especially as some of these businesses have gotten so institutionalized and there's consultants on top of the institutions. So everyone has a little job to fill out their spreadsheet and is missing the opportunity to step back and figure who's going to get me the best actual risk-adjusted returns on a net basis. So you've mapped out the business plan for combined MSTBDT over the next, whatever it is, five years. What are you aspiring to create in terms of the business? I think we want to create something where the best long-term oriented investors, I think that's going to be mostly, but not exclusively, mostly family offices or founders or individuals. And we have a handful of really important strategic partners on the institutional side, as does BDT. So that class of investors wants to come to us to be their solution provider across whatever asset classes we think we have the right to win in, which day one will be long-term private capital, credit, real estate, and growth equity. We may build more, but I think that's kind of enough and it sticks to our knitting day one. 
And then where any family-owned business or founder-led business says, these guys know how I think. They've worked with 200 other families that see all the same problems I have. I want to be part of that network and part of that world. And so I can ask family X or family Y how they did it. I can ask the BDT, MSD team to give me advice on whatever faces me and really think that they know how to put themselves in my shoes. Someone said, well, you're going to be an investment banker again. I said, no, we're just focused on this little niche of family-owned businesses. And then under my breath said, it's about 98% of the businesses in the world, but it's this little niche over here. But that's where we're focused. We're not going to go try to do big, massive public company, public company merger. That's, we're not in the league table M&A business. We're in the, how do you provide trusted advice to families and founders? And that could include capital and it could include anything. Well, Greg, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. And I want to start with one that's a little bit different because I know you have a sister that's sitting at the top of JP Morgan. Was there anything in your upbringing that you've tried to instill in your kids to have that kind of trajectory across the family? So my sister runs the wealth management business at JP Morgan. My other sister runs all the events and conferences for Mike Bloomberg at Bloomberg. And then my brother's been a 20 plus year wealth management advisor at Goldman Sachs. If you went to our house in the 1980s, there is zero, zero that would have indicated any of us were going to have any success. Like zero, I think we were sitting around throwing stuff at each other after school, watching the Brady Bunch or something like that. I don't quite know what happened. Now I say that my mom is going to get mad at me. My parents were awesome. They were great parents. They inspired us without pushing us. They kind of let us do what we want. They let us figure things out. I think it was fun being part of a big family, but it wasn't like we were sitting there watching Wall Street Week and grinding out math models or something like that. And as we've gone through life, again, back to the random walk of luck or skill and the sliding doors, we've each found a path that has been great. And we are each, interestingly, I'd say at the same time, supportive of each other, but quite competitive in like a fun way. When my sister was at JP Morgan, I was at Goldman. We'd have some fun jousting back and forth. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'd love to go out and play golf. And I'm not particularly great at it, but it's a great way to go spend four hours outside. I'm fortunate enough to be able to do it in really beautiful, interesting places and almost often with really interesting people. It's also an amazing tool in business and it amazes me how few people understand it. But I'd say in 28 years at Goldman Sachs, I don't care how brilliant I might've been in any meeting, never once did a client say, God, remember that time we flipped through that blue book and you took me through that DCF and wasn't that magical? And I was like, that never happened. But the amount of times, I remember that time we spent four hours at this golf course or that golf course. And the other thing that's fascinating is it teaches you three things. One, it teaches you someone's temperament because everyone hits a bad golf shot. So you see how they are. Two, it teaches you how they treat other people. How someone treats a caddy is very interesting and insightful. It's like how they treat a waiter. And three, can they follow the rules? Not everyone actually follows the rules on a golf course. Do they cheat? Do they treat a caddy well? And do they have a bad temper? And you very quickly can figure out a lot about a person on four hours on the golf course. What's your biggest pet peeve? People who walk slowly in front of me drives me crazy. And people who don't know how to spell, which is getting worse and worse and worse with text because I think you're allowed not to spell. And then I just see people who were mailing it in. If you don't want to be all in doing something, just go do something else. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I would say Gene Sykes, who we talked about earlier. I mean, really in the early days taught me how to be a trusted advisor. And the thing that was fascinating about Gene, I still don't know how he did it, but you'd go to a deal and there'd invariably be a tax issue and a legal issue and a business issue and something about the industry. And somehow he knew more about the tax issue than the tax guy, like the industry than the CEO. It was amazing. And he did it effortlessly. And then the most important thing is every deal you'd end, both sides would want to hire him next. And that never happens. He was great in terms of teaching you disposition and client service and how to become a trusted advisor. And I'm now going to be torn. I'd say David Solomon did teach me a ton as a manager, but Michael Dell's taught me a ton as a business builder. And I feel like I'm in that mode of trying to build a business now. His ability to really just 
rise up out of all the day-to-day BS and think strategically. Even when he was sitting down with Byron and me one time, as we were talking about how we're going to divide all the tasks. I said to Byron, like, how many important decisions do you make in a day or a week? And Byron's like, I don't know, 30 or 50? And Michael's like, you're doing it wrong. And he was like, what do you mean? He's like, I make six to 12 a year. All that other stuff that you think is important, number one, isn't important. Number two, someone else can be doing it for you and freeing up your time. We do now think about how we want to run this business and divide up the world and have the most impact on this combined client base. It's been a great lesson for both of us to figure out where you can let go, where you can get other people working with you to do their highest and best use and focus on the big picture. So that's been a great lesson because the classic investment banker mindset is do everything for anybody all the time, right? Solve their problems, do more. There's an extra five minutes in the day, I can get one more client. And actually trying to pull back from that natural temptation of being in a market share business to being an investing business where you actually need more time to step away and think and be strategic. What type of investment or deal do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? Interesting founders more than anything. I almost start with the people and then grind into the business model. But people who are really trying to build something interesting and special is where I go to. Now, thank goodness my credit guys will go to just businesses that pay off cash flow. So I'm glad those guys are doing what they're doing. Get me an interesting, compelling founder and have she or he talk to me about what they're trying to build. That's what I like to do. What are your biggest blind spots? Not pushing people enough to give constructive feedback up. People sit there and tell you how great you are all day long, and that's great. It feels good. You go home feeling great about yourself, but really trying to improve yourself. And it's the more you go up, the fewer people there are above you to tell you the stuff you're doing wrong. So really trying to make sure you're getting that feedback. I say one of the things I feel great about here is I walked into an incredibly fortunate situation at MSD with a couple of senior people who'd been here a long time that just from day one, I could trust. That was the part I was worried about. And day one, they really became business partners of mine. But without that, it's hard. And I don't want to say the corny, it's lonely at the top, but it's hard to get real constructive feedback from anyone, except my wife. She's good at it. But from anyone else, it's hard to get it. So the blind spot is believing all the bullshit. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Treating people well. They were focused on being success-oriented, achievement-oriented, but not at all costs. They'd be more proud if I got the sportsmanship award than the MVP. And maybe that's because I got the sportsmanship award, not the MVP. I don't know. I think they <laughs> pretended they would have always been more proud. I think it's just how you treat people, you know, not in a business sense, but in general, the importance of family. All right, Greg, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Compounding capital can make a lot of difference. You spend your life in a world of maximizing pre-tax income, and you go to a world of actually compounding capital, if you think about it just from an investment standpoint, and it's meaningfully different. Again, I wouldn't go back and change anything, but I do think it is an interesting perspective as you look back over 30 years. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing this great adventure. Thanks, Ted. Super fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 